This is uh, Page Care Theory 3, Unit 2, Part 3. We're on Section C. Um, <coughs> so let's go over complexes and intervals just as a review, and then we'll go to uh, lead placement. Right? Uh, so what's a normal PR interval? No, 0.12 to 0.20. Yeah, okay. I don't know if that's what you said, but I couldn't hear anyone in the back. Yeah. And he said no. 0.12 to 0.20, right? The, the range is important because a short PR interval can be indicative of something like a WPW, right? Or junctional rhythm. So 0.12 to 0.20. Uh, what's the normal QRS? Less than 0 0.12 or 0 0.08 to 0 0.10. Yeah, good. So less than 0 0.12. If, if you're going to use the less than or equal than or greater than symbols, make sure you use them correctly. Because I've had people come to my office for test review and they said, I wrote less than. No, that's actually greater than. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, the arrow to the left is less than. The arrow to the right is greater than. Yeah, but what side of the eater? <laughs> 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 the eater eats the bigger number. That's what I was taught. What? Yeah. The yeah. greater mouth eats the bigger number. Yes. Greater than? Okay. It's eating the greater number. Less than? Yeah. What's that? Can you show me that one more time? You said the QRS. I said it normally less than 0.12 seconds. Yeah. Okay, so QT. What's a normal QT? What's a what's a prolonged QTC? Calculated QT. What's a prolonged QTC? Greater than 500 milliseconds. So QT is normally less than half of the RR. That's a really crude way to measure it. So if it's greater than half of the RR, it's clearly a, a long QT. But if you're looking at the QTC, anything 500 milliseconds or greater is considered prolonged. And <coughs> in athletes, um, I don't quote me on the numbers here. I'm going to pull a national in here. But um, uh, I think as an Olympic athlete, you're disqualified if your QTC is greater than 480. And it might be, f it's one number for men and one number for women. It's different, but it's like 480 to 490. Uh, because if you got a long QT, there's a risk of sudden death, right? A risk of torsade de pointe, a risk of sudden death. So they can't have. Olympic athletes dying on TV, it's just bad for TV ratings, you know. People don't want to spend millions of dollars on advertisements when athletes are dropping dead on the track and field uh, runs. It's fun for you and me because we like to see people die and then resuscitate them, but uh, it's not fun for the average person, I guess. I don't know if you remember, they used to show these uh, clips from Wild World of Sports and they showed this one where uh, an alpine skier wiped out and hit a fence <coughs> and slid down the snow and it just left this long trail of blood. That grossed even me out. That was disturbing. But anyway, uh, QT intervals. So 500 milliseconds. Uh, 500 milliseconds or greater would be considered a long QT. So when you've got... Um, in, in what sorts of patients would you want to see their QTC? What sort of clinical presentations would you want to see their QTC? 
This is a painful pause. Electronic imbalances, for sure. <laughs> or suspect, <laughs> or suspect, <laughs> suspected electrolyte imbalances, right? So vomiting, diarrhea. Yeah. Um, maybe it's n it, it wouldn't be a big priority um, unless this was the first time seizure. They'd never had a seizure before. But um, seizure wouldn't be the first that comes to mind. Yeah. Anything else? If you had torsad, how would that present clinically? How might it present clinically? I don't mean how it looks on the cardiogram, but I, th I have a feeling we didn't talk really talk about torsad point, did yeah, we? We never talked about, we we never talk like about torsad. We know what it looks like. <coughs> okay. So bottom line is, um, patients with prolonged QT are at risk of sudden death. Um, common cause of sudden death is torsad de point, which is a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. And torsad de point is interesting because um, it can present in very short bouts. And when people have short bouts of torsad that last just a few seconds, they could just have sudden dizziness, near syncope, full syncope, but it may be very brief. So anyone who has syncope or near syncope should probably get a 12 lead. Unless they're a kid, then you gotta use your discretion, right? So. <coughs> you got to use your discussion. Uh, but um, I check for uh, any drowning, near drowning, 12 lead ECG is probably appropriate. So torsat is a polymorphic ET. It often happens about, it's, it's a really interesting dysrhythmia because, uh, and the most common cause is long QT. Um, it's a really interesting dysrhythmia because it's a shock of a rhythm, just like VF. Um, but they could go into torsad and stay in torsad and they're probably going to be vital signs absent or they can have short bouts where they just syncopize and uh, or they have near syncope or they just feel suddenly unwell or dizzy or nauseated or short of breath briefly and then it disappears <coughs> but it's it's potentially lethal so if you ever catch someone in torsad uh, there are minimum CTAS to priority four if they're symptomatic priority three if they're not um, and they need to have a 12 lead done to see if they have long QT or if they have some correctable cause of their torsad deployment um, because there's a very high risk of death with those patients. Um, so for 12 lead, unlike dysrhythmic interpretation, for 12 lead we care about the ST segment and the isoelectric line. Um, and uh, at the beginning of the ST segment um, where the QRS meets the ST segment is the J point, and uh, we're looking for elevation or depression of the J point. Some people recommend measuring the J point uh, uh, like a millimeter into the beyond the J point. Um, we can talk about that if you like. And then um, the ST segments. Uh, so normal QT would be less than half of the RR, and a prolonged QT would be greater than half of the RR. But that method of QT measurement is really uh, crude, and it won't catch all of the um, all of the the long QTs. Uh, when you do a 12 lead and it says QTC, that's the better method because the QT interval changes with heart rate, and so that's why there's a measured QTC. <coughs> now you can actually take a calculator and measure the QTC, but it involves the square root of something, and the minute anyone gives me medical math with a square root, I just shut down. You know, I have a <laughs> massive cerebral shutdown. And so uh, 
the nice thing is the monitor calculates it for you. So it's a valuable number to look at. And if you do a 12 lead ECG, and I can't emphasize this enough, if you do a 12 lead ECG, um, you should routinely look at the monitor's interpretation of the PR interval, the QRS duration, and the QTC. You should do that routinely. Because if you don't do it routinely, when it really counts, when it really matters, you're gonna miss it, right? You can't just go, oh, this patient had a syncopal episode. I should look at the QTC now. Mm, no. If you don't look at the QTC except in those cases, you're probably never gonna look at the QTC. Just like listen to heart sounds, my advice is if you ever have someone with chest discomfort or shortens of breath, listen to the lungs first, but always listen to the heart sounds in two places to see if there's any mitral valve issue, to see if you're hearing a clear lub-dub or a swish-dub or a lub-swish or something that suggests a regurgitation, right? <coughs> but very few medics listen to heart sounds and very few still look at QT intervals. If you do it, you, you just elevated yourself up into the higher percentile of medics. <coughs> Now, speaking of uh, seizures, you know, to Lucas's point earlier, um, I had a guy who, um, he was a 21-year-old, I think, and he had a seizure that lasted a couple of minutes, two, three minutes, and <coughs> stop me if I told you about this case, but it was a really frustrating call because um, he, uh, had recovered from the seizure. It, it was 20 minutes post-seizure when we got there. And we pulled up, and he basically, before I even opened my mouth, he said, I'm not going to the hospital, you guys. And I said, okay, can we talk first? <laughs> you know, can, can you, uh, uh, you know, if you don't mind, can we do a set of vital signs and do some, uh, 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 do an assessment and take a history before, you know, we say goodbye? And uh, it took me uh, us a while actually to uh, to persuade him to let us to take a blood pressure on him even or take a pulse. Anyway, so it's 20 minutes past the seizure. He had a seizure once last year, and he had a second seizure now. And his mom was there with him, and she was concerned. She wanted to go to the hospital. He was at him, and he wasn't going. And he he said, "I know it's not uh, neurological because he saw a neurologist." And he said, they ruled that out. And he said, and I said, well, if it's not neurological, the next logical explanation is that it's something cardiac, something to do with your heart. And he said, there's nothing wrong with my heart. Like, he just looked at me like, you're an ass, you know? So I said, the, you know, the chances are low, uh, the probability is low, and most seizures are idiopathic. There's no way to diagnose whether you have a seizure disorder. You just have a seizure and it's, you know, diagnosis of exclusion. But anyway, he finally let us do all this stuff. And when I, when I felt his radio pulse, it was like pounding away. I said, your heart rate's really fast. And he said, well, that's because you guys are here. You scare me. And I said, <laughs> well, you hide it well, because you sure don't look scared. <laughs> Annoyed you look. Scared, definitely not. Um, and I said, do you have any objection if we do a cardiogram? We put leads on your chest and do a 12. So in the bottom line, is we did a 12 lead. His heart rate's pounding at 150 20 minutes after the seizure, which is not normal. 
Uh, and when I looked at his 12 lead, he had a QTC of 565, and that's not normal. So I was really worried now. So we did everything to try to persuade him. I even contacted a base hospital doc, had the doc speak to him, and he still said no. We had a supervisor there, so the supervisor was a witness, and uh, we went through all the routines. So <coughs> what I did was I left, I left a copy of the cardiogram with his mom, and I said, at the earliest possible, I think it was a Sunday, I said, at the earliest possible time, maybe tomorrow, can you can you go to your family doc and just present him with this cardiogram and said that we had concerns and I wrote information on the cardiogram for her and everything and so I never ever heard what happened to this guy but um, what I suspect happened was he had uh, a lethal dysrhythmia he had a torsad de point and because his brain was hypoperfused sometimes you know when someone goes into cardiac arrest they have a brief seizure and I suspect he probably had torsade de point, might have been in and out of it, and he had this tonic-clonic seizure that, according to his mom, lasted two to three minutes, which is long for a seizure. So he might have been in and out of torsade de point. I honestly think he had a near-death event, but I couldn't persuade him. His mom was very upset. She took the cardiogram. I never heard anything more. I even went to the hospital later to see if maybe she'd persuaded him to go, and but nothing. Anyway. So I was frustrated by this. So I sent an email to Amal Matu. Did we talk about him last year? So Amal Matu, Amal Matu, let me spell his name for you. Um, he's a, he calls himself an emergency physician and EKG enthusiast. He has some of the best educational YouTube videos you will ever see but if you just do a search for his name to find his videos he does cases um, reviews cases and he's a brilliant educator he just has a, a gift for explaining things in really simple terms so if you really want to advance your 12 ECG knowledge Amal Mat I can never remember how to pronounce his name Amal Matu Amal Matu something like that anyway uh, brilliant guy I sent him an email and I explained the case and I said I don't think it was a neurological seizure I'm worried that this was a near-death event and uh, I sent him a copy of the cardiogram with all the information blocked out on it I didn't hear from him nine months later I got an email from him all it said was Rob I agree 100% <laughs> signed Dr. Matu <laughs> that was it <laughs> but I was so excited I still have that email I should put it in a frame I really should put it in a frame. I, I'm a total fanboy. The man is brilliant. He is so brilliant. Uh, anyway, so uh, sometimes near-death near events happen as a result of dysrhythmias. Torsade de point is a classic one. And long QT is the most common cause of torsade de point. And so if you, uh, you know, kids drown, not because they can't swim, but because of long QT and torsades, so, all right, let's look at 12 leads. So unlike uh, the monitor where you're just looking at the patient's ECG from a single lead perspective, <coughs> and by the way, if I haven't said this, I gotta say it now. Um, if you're interpreting a rhythm and you're on lead two and you're having difficulty interpreting the rhythm, look at other leads. Dial it to lead one, dial it to lead three, do a modified chest lead, look at other leads, right? Um, I get medics to this day, working medics 
new grads send me an ECG and say, Rob, do you know what this rhythm is? And I look at it and go, I have no idea. Have you got it in another lead? I say, no. Look at it in another lead because what appears completely confusing in lead two might be crystal clear in one or three or AVR or AVL or AVF or V1 through V6. So the 12 lead looks at the heart from 12 different perspectives and it's, um, it's intended to identify pathologies where your monitor is intended to uh, identify rate and rhythm only. Rate and rhythm and funny looking beats only. That's it. 12 lead, we're looking at pathologies. So we're looking at infarctions, we're looking at subunit cardiac ischemia, we're looking at um, cardiomyopathies, we're looking at QTs and long QTs, we're looking at signs of WPW, uh, we're looking at even signs of pulmonary embolism, bundle branch blocks, fascicular blocks, bifascicular blocks, so we're looking at pathologies. <coughs> so first principles, obviously, is we treat the patient, not the ECG. Um, 12 lead is, is a diagnostic tool. It's a very good diagnostic tool. Uh, it should be performed on all patients with chest pain, shortness of breath or dyspnea, uh, or any patient in whom you suspect a, uh, uh, an altered cardiac function. Um, 15 to 20% of MIs will have no ECG evidence of an infarct. So, so 12 lead has a very high specificity, but the, the sensitivity is only about 80 to 85%. So some patients will infarct and you won't see their changes. Now, you might see the changes in 10 minutes or an hour, right? So when you do a cardiogram on someone you suspect is having cardiac ischemia and there's nothing, the back of the ambulance, you know, within 10 minutes of the first cardiogram, do a second cardiogram. And if the second cardiogram reveals a STEMI, a STEMI, a STEMI, um, you know, that's when you switch directions from the local hospital to the PCI center. Yeah? What part of the heart does the AVR so um, AVR looks at the, the heart from the right arm perspective. So it's looking at it from this perspective here. And we'll talk about the different leads and sort of what they're looking at and why they are what they are in, in a minute. And um, so uh, when you've got ECG changes consistent with MI and, and the signs and symptoms are consistent with MI, the sensitivity is almost 100%. So it's, uh, but context is everything, right? So if, if someone comes to me with a cardiogram and I look at it and at a glance it looks like a STEMI to me, I ask them about the patient. Sometimes they, they don't want to tell you about the patient, right? Because they're trying to stump you, stump the chump. Um, and I'll say, no, what, tell me about the patient. Well, he was a 16-year-old. Was he having chest pain? No. Was he short of breath? No. Yeah, it's not a STEMI, <laughs> uh, right? Because people can have early repolarization. We'll talk about that. It looks like a STEMI. They can have other conditions going on. It looks like a STEMI, but it's not. Uh, so context is everything. So EC changes, uh, there are other ECG changes that can masquerade as MI, uh, which we'll talk about. So lead placement. <coughs> Um, so we've got three bipolar leads, the leads one, two, and three, and bipolar simply means they use two electrodes to measure the heart's uh, electrical activity. Um, so when you're putting the monitoring leads on, for example, you'll recall that, that uh, in lead two, the negative lead is on the right shoulder and the positive lead is the left lateral chest. Um, and uh, uh, in lead one, negative is right shoulder, positive is left shoulder, and lead three, the negative is the le left shoulder, and the positive is the left lateral chest. So those are bipolar leads. 
uh, oops. And then there are three unipolar leads that if you're putting the limb leads on the limbs, they essentially uh, form the unipolar leads. Augmented vector right, augmented vector left, and augmented vector foot, which is the left foot. And they're augmented because they're unipolar leads, and because they're at a distance from the heart, the signal has to be augmented internally. So uh, it's referred to as augmented vector. And vector just simply means um, it's a summary of all waves of depolarization. So when you've got, uh, when your heart is thicker on the left compared to the right, you're going to get waves of depolarization here and here and in this direction, in all directions. Uh, but the summary of all waves of depolarization is going to lean a little bit left because the left ventricle is thicker, right? So the vector will be a little left normally. And uh, so when we're talking about unipolar leads, we're just talking about the summary of the, the waves of depolarization. So augmented vector right arm, augmented vector left arm, and augmented vector left foot. Um, and then there's six uh, precordial leads, um, V1 through V6. Those are also unipolar, but they, they're not augmented because they're right on the chest, right around the heart, so they tend to get fairly big signals. When you do RV4, RV5, RV6, the complexes tend to be small, because believe it or not, they're not as close to the heart as these ones here on the left. And that, just in case, you had trouble with the math, I put the 12 there. I don't know why I did that. But <laughs> um, now, there are actually only 10 electrodes that go on the body, right? Because uh, the, the electrodes are shared by the bipolar leads and the, the three unipolar leads. Uh, so there's only 10 electrodes that go on the body, so. <coughs> uh, all right, so, uh, oh, that graph is way off. Yeah, that's <laughs> off, yeah. Uh, let's look at the precordial leads. <coughs> but getting back to the limb leads, so when you decide to do a 12-lead ECG, um, whether you put the electrodes on the chest or the arms, you know, arguably doesn't matter a great deal. However, um, the way you put the leads on should be fairly consistent with the way they put the leads on in hospital. The patient position should be fairly consistent with the way they do it in hospital. So in most hospitals, they have the patient sitting up on a 45 degree angle and they put the limb leads on the forearm, forearm, inner part of the leg, just above the medial malleolus. Um, and the only concern is that if the hospitals do it that way, and you do the leads on the chest, your ECG is gonna look a little bit different from the hospital ECG. And so if I'm a nurse working in the eMERGE and I looked at my cardiogram and I looked at yours and I saw they were different, I'd be thinking the paramedics don't know what they're doing. So if you wanna look like you know what you're doing, um, follow the way they do cardiograms in the hospital. It's that simple. Um, is it the end of the world if you do it differently? No, but <coughs> the only trouble with putting leads to on the limbs is you get artifact. And if the patient's sitting at the kitchen table and you put the, all the leads on, um, like the ones in the limbs, and you, now you want them to stand up and walk over to the stretcher three feet away, um, they're tangled up in wires, right? So you may have to disconnect those, walk them, and then put them back on again. <coughs> so the, the precordial leads, and you've 
done this in the lab already, right? You've put them on? Okay, so, um, and do you palpate with two fingers straddling the second rib? Is that how you do it? <laughs> how did you learn to put the precordial leads on? You, you find the notch? And then you find the angle of Louis? Yeah. Oh, that's way too difficult. That's way too yeah. That's way too difficult. Um, can I get a, a volunteer up here? Yeah, come on up. Well, yeah, it should never hurt. I gotta get you to take your shirt off. Okay. Okay. Okay, so stand here. <laughs> I can't wait for people to walk past. <laughs> okay, so clavicles are here, right? Um, and the first rib is right underneath the clavicle, but it uh, takes a hairpin turn and upwards, so you can't even palpate the first uh, rib. But you will be able to palpate the second rib. So if you go at the sternal border, the second rib, right, you put your two fingers just below the clavicle, you're straddling the second rib. So that's the second rib there. And you want to be at the sternal border because so even if someone who's got big boobs or is a little chubby, uh, you can palpate at the sternum because there's very little fat there. Right, so, whoops, sorry. I go here, straddling the second rib, third, fourth, boom, you're there. Oh, we just count, we're like. Wow. It's a glass so much second the second yeah. I don't really Yeah, so, clavicle, the, the, first, the first rib you palpate is the second one. The first rib that you can palpate is the second one. And you want the palms of your fingers just laying down, straddling like that, and you can feel it. You don't have to dig, you just feel it there. That's two, that's three, that's four. Boom. Now, I'll just tell you, you can put your shirt back on, thanks. Now, I'll just tell you, if you do it on yourself, it's not the same. I don't know why it is, but you can't feel it on yourself as much. It's like trying to tickle yourself, like there's nothing. <laughs> nothing happens. <laughs> Do you want some yeah. time alone? Or <laughs> 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 you, you can't like go like this to your skin and it doesn't tickle? No, not really. Anyway, so, so put it, so maybe, that, maybe that's not a good analogy, but it's just, it's easier to palpate the intercostal spaces on someone else's chest than it is on you. Just like the cricoid membrane, it's easier to palpate on someone else. So, <coughs> so that's the easiest method. The, the old Langle of Louis, that's, that works as well, but it's just not as easy. Thanks, yeah, 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 yeah. nice, Kyle. <laughs> so, so V1, V2 go in the fourth intercostal space, right and left sternal border, respectively. V3, um, so. Uh, usually then you put, once you've got V1, V2, then you put V4 in the intercostal space, um, mid uh, clavicular line, and, and then you put V3 between the two, and then V5 and V6 just go in a straight line with uh, V4 at the anterior axillary line, so in uh, the mid axillary line, right? So halfway the armpit or anterior, okay? The lead placement is important. The most common mistake I see uh, in 12 lead application is people put V1, V2, one intercostal space too high. 
So if you're in the lab and I happen to be there and you want to try a lead placement on someone, you want me to watch, uh, just let me know. I'll tell you if you're in the right place or not. Uh, yeah. Now, this guy's got great, um, you can see his intercostal spaces, which makes it a lot easier. <laughs> Yeah, the pecs are a little weak, eh? Well, he's in a weird position, but, you know, cut, cut the poor guy some slack. Yeah. I would, I would gladly take his weird pecs over my current body, so. That's right. Sexy dad bod. Yeah, all right, moving on. So, <coughs> when you see an inferior wall MI, <coughs> uh, we want to do V4R and V5R and V6R. That's my opinion. Um, then I can do posterior leads, but what I'm most concerned about, I'm not worried about posterior leads because uh, an RV infarct is the patient who's going to be hypotensive with a clear chest and neck vein distension and who's going to need fluid resuscitation. Posterior wall infarct, there's no definitive clinical presentation that tells me it's posterior or otherwise. And I can see evidence of posterior wall infarct in a standard 12 lead ECG, and we'll cover that too. So I'm just giving my opinion, and I'll give you an example to prove my point later on. So in terms of um, what the electrode sees, so we talked about this in rhythms uh, earlier, and that is that if the wave of depolarization moves towards a positive electrode, you get a positive deflection, positive P wave, positive QRS. If it moves away from a positive electrode, you get a negative deflection. Now, the other things that can cause a negative deflection are pathologies like old infarcts, certain disease states, uh, bundle branch blocks, and so on that we talked about. So <coughs> here's an example. <coughs> In lead two, right, the positive lead is here. The QRS is going to be positive. In uh, V1, the positive electrode is going to be in uh, the fourth intercostal space, right sternal border. And so the bulk of the wave of depolarization, the ventricle is going to be away from that. So you get a negative QRS. You get, usually in V1, you get a little R wave, and that's depolarization of the intraventricular septum. And then the rest is negative. <coughs> okay. Any questions about lead placement? <coughs> <coughs> 